It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot, be bad, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Wednesday going so far? Hopefully after a great start, we're going to make it better. That's what we do. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd in the co-pilot seat as he has been all week long. It's September, Jamie. It is? Yeah. We flipped over the calendar month to month. That's a good thing for sports fans. We're going to discuss that throughout the course of the day. September is one of those months. And look, we got conditioned as we were growing up because that's when you went back to school and you reset for the new school year. And some people hated that and some people loved it. But this month, sporting-wise gets us into a whole different realm because the NFL comes back. NHL preseason fires up at some point. The MLB stretch drive is there. The U.S. Open is going on right now. I know it starts in late August, but the meat of the tournament gets going in September. CFL, we always talk about post-Labor Day CFL. There's lots to get into. We can talk about that throughout the course of the morning, Jamie. And I want to know from our listeners what your favorite part of September is. Maybe we'll fire a poll up online at some point. But we have to begin with this Canadian women rule. And August belonged to Canadian women from a sports standpoint in this country, did it not? Yeah, it sure did. I mean, catching the tail end of the Olympics, obviously the women's soccer team, and then carrying on and on until what we saw last night, which was just incredible. Yeah, this month started with our women racking up Olympic medals and us asking aloud, okay, guys, Fellas, time to pull up your socks. Time to get a part of the conversation here. And our women were great, winning 18 of the 24 medals that this country achieved overseas. There was the unforgettable goal that you just talked about. That's an historic win for Canadian women's soccer. It's one of the defining moments of sport in this country for the month of August, and it will be for the calendar year of 2021. This month ends with our women's hockey team basically following a similar script to their soccer-playing counterparts. They didn't go down 2-0 in that soccer match, but one goal in soccer kind of feels like two in hockey. The Americans get on the board with a couple last night. Our Canadian women fight back. And then, of course, just like our Canadian women did, it was a little bit different because it wasn't an extra-time goal. It was a shootout. There was no shootout to be had last night. And, of course, of course she delivered. Of course Marie-Philippe Poulin scored the winner. And what a shot, what a moment, what a goal, right? The the kind of surreal celebration afterwards where she initially was one of the only people that realized that it actually went in before it dawned on everyone else too. But, I mean, just, just focusing on the shot and the skill, the placement, you could not have placed it in the top corner better than Marie-Philippe Poulin did on that shot. Just literally the perfect shot to win it for Canada in overtime. Stole the word out of my mouth. Perfect. It is the perfect shot not one you fault the goaltender on nothing like that it was a perfectly labeled shot she knew it not everyone did I scared my kids jumping off the couch because I (laughs) believed her I was glad I was proven right that's now my new bar Jamie that's my new bar for how excited I am did I scare the children or not and yes I scared the children I leapt off my couch last night yeah, definitely early in the game when uh, Canada fell uh, fell down to nothing. You know, they had some missed opportunities. I definitely had to bite back some some choice curse words in the presence of my daughter that I would normally let fly at the TV. Is there anyone else on the planet that you would want in a gold medal game 
Marie-Philippe Poulain. Your answer might be Christine Sinclair, and I know she's at the tail end of her career, but she gave us the moment that this country needed. Marie-Philippe Poulain, I hope you know the resume by now, but for those who don't, she scored both goals in a 2-0 shutout in the gold medal game at the 2010 Olympics. Thank you for coming. I'll take care of the scoring. She scores the game-tying goal in the final minute of regulation in that epic comeback win in 2014, and then she goes into overtime and scores the OT winner in the gold medal game in those 2014 Olympics, and then she gets her golden goal hat trick, if you will, last night. Canada wins the Women's World Championship for the first time in nine years. Jamie, this is my petition allowed right now to rename Golden Goal the MPP. Let's just call it the MPP <laughs> if you score a golden goal. Yeah, I, I don't have any issue with it right now. And, you know, you, you listed off her resume there. It really is remarkable when you run it down like that. I mean, having one of those performances in a high stakes, big, you know, big time gold medal game is kind of enough to cement you as a hockey legend. She's done it three times now where she has, as you say, the golden goal, the golden goal hat trick, phenomenal performances in big games, winning gold for her country. What a career she has fashioned so far. And this is another discussion we can have throughout the course of the show. She is obviously on the list and she is top of mind because of what she did last night. But who are those other clutch performers the most clutch performers in sports those athletes jamie that as the clock winds down you want the ball in their hands whether they're taking a shot in basketball whether it's a quarterback trying to drive for the game-winning score that pitcher that you want on the mound in those moments whether it's a baseball player you want at the ditch dish a hockey player where you say i'll tell you what it's game seven it's winner take everything that's who I want on the ice. Like, who are those most clutch performers? 960, 960, 650, 650. Yeah, and the one that springs to mind for me, actually, immediately is he's retired now, but it's Justin Williams in the NHL, right? I mean, he was he was Mr. Game 7. He was phenomenal in Game 7s, really good in the playoffs in general. And, you know, great player in the regular season, but always found a way, it seemed like, to get on the board and make an impact in those elimination games. Well, and here's the other part of this conversation that makes what Marie-Philippe Poulain has done so remarkable, Jamie. In a sport like hockey and how much team effort it requires and, and really how little you play relative to some of the other sports, I'm not going to diminish those who come up clutch at the end of a basketball game at all. But you and I both know this. You can get the ball into that player's hands. There is no guarantee yeah. in hockey that the right player is going to be on the ice or that the right player is going to have the puck, which makes her accomplishments that much more remarkable. There's also something very impressive. You know, I threw out Justin Williams, right, who's a very good regular season player but took it to another level you know, in the playoffs and specifically in game sevens. The thing with Marie-Philippe Poulain is she's already one of the best players on the ice, right? In, in every situation, in every game. I mean, for a long time, she's been considered the best women's player in the world. But despite starting at that incredibly high level, she all she still somehow finds a way to raise her game and to, and raise the bar in those big moments, which is really, really hard to do. Buffalo Bill says, to be honest, Canada was let back into the game by a chintzy face-off violation penalty. Good win, though. Look, I don't think we're going to blame the officials for Canada's power plays. The Americans got a lot of power plays. Yeah. It was a great night on ice for everybody but the Stripes. That was not a particularly well-officiated game last night. Yeah, no, it was not. As as the texter mentions, you know, the one, the questionable chintzy, whatever you want to call it, on the face-off violation to give Canada the power play. There were some missed calls in both directions, I thought. It's one of those things where, you know, the, the rivalry is so intense. I get the sense that almost... 
the referees don't quite know how to police it either because there's certain things you're supposed to call in the women's game, but you understand that kind of both teams are doing it and they that's how they want to play the game. So you swallow your whistle a little bit, but then you feel like you have to call some of them anyways. It just felt inconsistent all night. It really did. And I'm really glad that didn't end up defining the outcome because it it certainly could have. There was a run on penalties in the third period. And if either team gets a power play goal at some point, there's probably a lot of lamenting about the officiating. Instead, both teams found a way to kill those off. Both teams found a way to get to overtime. And I want to talk about overtime today because I had a little bit of a fear going into overtime. Not that Canada was going to lose. I was confident in my country. Absolutely. Three on three. And I'm not sure everyone knew that last night, but it was three-on-three overtime in a high-stakes situation. We're conditioned to seeing it in the National Hockey League. We're not conditioned to seeing it when a gold medal is on the line. And there wasn't going to be a shootout last night, and that was a good thing because one of the things I loved about last night's three-on-three overtime, both teams were going for it. And Canada had the bulk of the possession, but they weren't doing that, all right, let's circle back, set up the perfect opportunity thing. They were pushing Jamie, I loved what I watched last night. It was very entertaining. It was very compelling. I liked it in the context of an international tournament because here's the thing. If you are not willing to just play continuous overtime until you get a winner and you're going to go at a shootout at some point, well, you got to take steps to avoid that, right? Nobody wants it to go to a shootout. And with three-on-three overtime for an extended period of time, you feel pretty good that you're going to get a winner rather than have to go to a shootout. So I do like it in that context. I still feel the best overtime solution is what we get in the Stanley Cup playoffs, which is continuous five-on-five overtime. And I know sometimes you get stretches out three, four, five overtimes even. I get it that, you know, logistically it can be an issue. I just still think that's the most entertaining, the purest, the best overtime solution. Liked it last night. Enjoyed it. I'm not going to be clamoring for it to come to the NHL in the playoffs, though. Okay, I think that would be too big of a change for most people to stomach. I think it would be an immediate no. As much as we love three-on-three overtime, and I'm put me on team 10-minute three-on-three overtime instead of shootout. Like, let's have yeah. more three-on-three overtime so that we get a decision that way instead of the shootout. I don't despise the shootout the way that some hockey fans do. But I'd like to see more three-on-three, and last night's a perfect example of why. Let's extend it a little bit. That was a lot of fun. So going from five-on-five, playoff overtime to three-on-three, no way. That's too big of a leap for most. I I do want to gauge this. After watching what you watched last night, are you more willing to consider as a hockey fan four-on-four overtime in the playoffs? If I'm being honest, Jamie, I am. And I have been on the traditionalist side of things. I'm not saying I'm convicted on that, but I'm much more willing to have a conversation about it now. And it would make you push at the end of regulation, all of those different things, if you didn't think it was going to suit your style in overtime. I am much more willing today to have a conversation about NHL four-on-four overtime in the playoffs than I ever have been in my life. Yeah, four-on-four is a lot more palatable to me than three-on-three. You're right, and probably for a lot of our listeners as well. Three-on-three, it just changes the game so dramatically, whereas four-on-four, it still looks a lot like the hockey you're used to seeing you know, in the first 60 minutes of the game. I mean, going back to the 2010 Olympics here in Vancouver, that overtime was four-on-four, right? And it didn't feel gimmicky. It It didn't feel like that at all. It still felt like you were watching the same hockey game. I wonder if you do, you know, the first overtime five on five, then for a second and beyond, you go down to four on four, something like that. Because I do love just the purity of the idea that, you know, the game doesn't change. Okay, 
we're tied. We're just going to keep playing the exact same game until we figure it out. I love the simplicity of that, but I hear what you're saying. And four on four, maybe a nice middle ground between what we have now and going the full three on three route immediately. Minor Matt in Abbotsford has suggested something similar to what you said. He said five on five for the first overtime, four on four for the second, three on three for the third, and every period beyond that. I would rather just stick with four on four from the beginning and play that way if that's what we're going to do. And I'd be okay with that. I don't despise five on five right now, but I do like the urgency getting up. I do like that. And that's what we saw last night. And that's what a lot of sports are trying to go to right now. Hey, let's up the urgency. Let's up the you can't afford to turn your head. As much as we love overtime in the National Hockey League playoffs, Jamie, there's not as much urgency when it's five on five most of the time. And and this past year's playoffs was a little bit different. We had a lot of quick finishes in last year's Stanley yep. Cup playoff edition when it came to the extra session. But most years... You know it's going to go for a bit. Ah, if I'm not back right at the start of overtime, it's probably not going to cost me. If it was four on four, I think you'd feel a little differently about it. Yeah, and I mean, I st- look, I still think there's plenty of urgency when it goes to overtime in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I hear what you're saying, though. It's not the same expectation that, oh, man, this could end, you know, in the first minute or something here. Like you have, you know, with three on three and to a lesser extent four on four. I do think part of this comes down to how much you tolerate the marathon games, right? That do end up stretching into the fourth or fifth overtime. I know some people kind of roll their eyes at them. It gets tedious. The quality of play suffers. You know, it's not ideal from a, from a broadcast standpoint. You got to stay up late, all of that. I love them. And they happen infrequently enough that the novelty doesn't wear off for me. I really, really enjoy them. I love it when it happens, you know, once a playoff or once every other playoffs, whatever the case may be. But I think that's a big part a big determiner in how you're going to feel about this, right? If you well, don't like those marathon games, then yeah, four and four, three and three makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that's part of it, Jamie. I think part of it's stylistic too. When you're five on five and you know the game is on the line, what is the nature of most hockey coaches, most hockey teams? Don't give anything up. Yep. When you open the ice up a little bit more, now we're talking about we got a chance to push for this, and let's do it before they do. So part of it to me is that tweak in mindset, and that's what we saw last night. Hey, it's three on three, and you're not going to have the benefit of a shootout if you play defensive here, so you might as well go for it. And I wonder if it's more just about flipping that switch because I would prefer to see aggression as opposed to let's wait back, let's look for a perfect opportunity. I'm not saying every overtime game unwinds that way. You're right. There is certainly urgency built in because you know next goal wins. But it lends itself, especially in hockey, especially as the playoffs go on, this is too critical for us to give anything up. Let's think defense first instead of offense. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is kind of ingrained in how NHL coaches want to go about their business, right? And anything that jolts them out of that and makes them play a little bit a little bit of a different style, yeah, I can get behind that. I'm just I, – I don't know. Maybe it's just pure nostalgia, an emotional connection for me, but I'm not quite ready – to go, to go away from the 5-on-5 five five OT in the Stanley Cup playoffs. No need to go to 4-on-4, four four, says this texter. Rarely games go past the first OT in the NHL. It's a fair point. I have to concede that point. It's more stylistic than anything else. Yep. I'm more willing to have that conversation today than I have before. Someone else texting in saying, soccer should eliminate penalty kicks, go seven aside. Maybe it's just because the game has been around forever. I'm more willing to tolerate it. It's, it's a terrible way to lose, as we found out with our – National women's team, it's a great way to win if it nets you a gold <laughs> yep. in the process or it allows you to beat Brazil in the quarterfinals. You're all good on that side of it. I'm more tolerant of it there. Are you? 
yeah, for whatever reason, it just feels more baked in to soccer culture, right? I guess because, as you say, it's been around for so long. Everyone's just kind of got used to it. Everyone accepts it. They know it's cruel, but that's how it is. It, it feels better in a soccer context than it does in a hockey context. Yeah, and there's someone else texting in supporting your cause. You can get in 960-960 or 650-650 anytime. Completely agree with Jamie. NHL playoff overtime is perfect the way it is. I think most of our listeners sit there simply because it's traditional. It's yep. all we've ever known. But I do think if you saw it, because last night I had the same fear. I literally had that last night. Man, we're going to decide a gold medal game with something that isn't what we've been watching and isn't what they've played this whole tournament doing. And then I watched it and I liked it. I've got to be honest. I, I had that bias going in. I, I watched it and I liked it last night. Yeah, it was great. It was it was very entertaining, and you're right. If if you were on the fence about it, seeing something like that and seeing how it ended and the fact that it didn't go to a shootout, that's absolutely going to sway you. I, I agree with you. It is super entertaining, and there is something very compelling about it. I'm just not quite ready to make the leap to getting rid of it, getting rid of what we're used to in the NHL. There's a lot of conversation about the women's tournament coming out and the level of competition, and there's some fatigue from some fans that Canada, USA are always in the final. Don't count me there. I see improvements from the Finnish side, the Swiss side. Go down the line. Team Japan is a lot better than they were 10, 15 years ago. I see improvements. The, the improvements haven't come with the other countries outside of Canada and the U.S. as quickly as we would have liked, Jamie. I'm not sure we need to to change things though in that respect yeah and the other i agree i don't know that we need to make big changes because of that i i will say i i think the other thing that sometimes is forgotten about in that conversation is okay yeah the other countries are trying to get better and they are getting better canada and the u.s are trying to get better too right and they're investing more money and they're rethinking the way the way they do things and the way they develop players so these other countries are improving. You're just not always seeing it relative to Canada and the U.S. Because guess what? They're spending a lot of time thinking about how to get better as well. And they are getting better. Yeah, they are. And I do think the competition level is coming up. It's obviously not where it is in North America. And you go back to what we saw last night. Obviously, because we are inherently biased and we want Canada to do well. And we love the rivalry with the U.S. The other part about it is that those games, when they mean something, they don't let you down. How many no. times have you gone into a big game, whether it's a championship game in whatever sport or a supposed long-storied rivalry, and you go, eh, that doesn't happen with this matchup. It really doesn't. No. That's what made the round-robin result so shocking. Yes. Right? Not just that it was Canada teeing off on the U.S., but you just don't see that in these games. You just absolutely do not see that in these games. And I'll admit, even when Canada was down to nothing in the first period, after the first period last night, you know, I, I because of the history of this rivalry, I kind of had a sneaking suspicion they were going to find a way back in this game. They were not going to let it get away from them. They were going to find a way to make it close because that's just always how it goes with these teams. And now they've met 19 times in this tournament's history. There's only two times where it hasn't been Canada, USA, Canada taken on Sweden in 2006 and the Olympics was one. And we're talking about world championships and, and Olympics and all of those things. We know Finland made it a couple of years ago at Canada's expense. Canada holds the edge overall, Jamie, 11 to 8. But isn't it crazy the wild swings that have gone yes. on? Like very early in the championship history between these two countries, it was all Canada. Even though I knew it going in, it still felt strange to say, well, this is the first time since 2012 Canada's won a world championship. 
I know it's incredible, really, like to, to think about how talented that team has been. And it's interesting because when you run off the win loss record between them, and as you say, there's been crazy swings, it seems like, oh, Canada was dominating the U.S. for this long. And then the U.S. started dominating Canada. But then you go back and look at the games and they're all overtime games or one goal games, right? There's a lot of coin flips built in there. It just happens that one team or another gets to go on a hot streak. But you're right. I mean, it's been almost a decade since they won that tournament. Burke from the Loops. Remember, there was no Team Sweden this year. It's a good point by you, Burke. This one comes in from Shane. Full team overtime, says Shane. Four on four just reduces the team skill required. There's only so many McDavid's. It does make you shorten your bench, which happens in overtime anyway. You don't see a a lot of fourth-line shifts in overtime in high-stakes games anyway. No, those guys are getting stapled to the bench, right? So even – and – even look at some of the uh, the ice time numbers that top pairing defensemen end up putting in those games, right? Because they just they, they don't come off the ice once it hits to overtime. Brian from Nanaimo says, I think if you go down to 4-on-4 four four in overtime, there's a higher likelihood of a highlight reel goal being scored. However, when the team you cheer for is in overtime, I don't care how many players are on the ice, I am fully invested. Of course you are. When it's your team, you don't care what the format is at that point. You can grumble about it at the time, but then your heart is just in it. Well, these are the rules we have to play by. These are the rules we have to play by. His point is a good one, though. Fewer players on the ice, it opens it up. It probably gives you a better opportunity for something like we saw last night from Marie-Philippe Poulin. Yeah, it it, it gives the star players more space to do their thing and more space to shine. That's absolutely part of it. Uh, This unsigned text comes into the Calgary inbox, 960-960, says if you're going 4-4 and in the playoffs, you're going to have to implement a rule of over and back with the red line because that has absolutely killed the 3-on-3 overtimes in the regular season. It's an interesting point. I don't know if you'd see it to the same extent with 4-on-4. It'd just be more difficult to pull off, but the whole tactic of, you know, circling back into your own defensive zone behind the net, waiting for your players to change before you go on the attack again. But as you said, Scott, in in the context of the winner-take-all gold medal game, we didn't really see that. It was was much more attack-focused, and that would be the hope if you ever did decide to experiment with it in NHL overtime, right? That the sense of urgency would be so much greater, you would see less cautious play in three-on-three and more all-out attacking play. I thought we were going to see it last night. That was part of the reason I feared the format, and early there was one turn back, and that might be the only one I saw last night. Yeah, they, they decided not to do that, not to go that route. I wonder if that's also just unique to the rivalry, right? Like maybe they wanted to play like that, but then once you're out there going up against your heated rival, it's just kind of, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to try to score. Some good texts are coming in. We will get to them, 960, 960, 650, 650. We want them in the program. We want you in the program. Get involved. Tim McAuliffe is going to do that next. We will expand this conversation, get into a couple of others with our weekly regular here on a midweek McAuliffe edition of Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Did you stay up a little later last night and watch a little U.S. Open tennis Canadian style, Jamie? I did. I watched a little Bianca Andreescu. It was great. She was, she was in tough. A lot of it had to do with her. Her opponent was playing very well, but she fought last night. She really did. It's part of her DNA. She's been injured a lot. I know people have been disappointed with a lot of her recent tournaments. She's been disappointed with a lot of her recent tournaments, Jamie. There were a couple opportunities where she could have folded it up last night, and she didn't do it. Yeah. It it was really a classic Bianca Andreescu match, right? You know, winning the first set, dropping the second. As you said, 
dealing with injuries, dealing with illness last night, opportunities for her to fold, but just finding a way to get it done, finding a way to battle back, stay in the fight and gutting out a win. Again, you know, part of, a big part of me wishes it didn't have to be so hard for her all the time, right? That she could actually rack up some easy wins here or there. It doesn't seem to be in that place right now, but it is always fun to watch her find a way to pull one out. Well, I went back and forth with one of our loyal listeners, Randy, last night on Twitter, who said, you know what, Bianca Andreescu, she's never going to reach her potential, and she's going to lose in the first round again. This has become a common thing, and she didn't do that last night. And I pushed back because Bianca is 21 years old, Jamie. She is the highest-ranked WTA player ever as far as our country goes. She got up to number four in the world. She's ranked sixth in this particular tournament, which she won two years ago, obviously. She's the only Canadian singles player to ever win a Grand Slam event. And I will go back to she is 21 years old. And there's a lot that has come her way after what was an epic 2019 run with the win at Indian Wells, the win at the U.S. Open, and the whole country watching getting on board. There's a lot of people pulling at you after that. There's a lot more focus on you after that there's a lot more pressure and expectation and she's dealt with injury along the way i understand the frustration on some people's part i love the fight more than anything else i'm with you it shouldn't have had to be so hard last night they're three three in the second set she looked like things were going to work out just fine and last night it felt like she was fighting herself at times it felt like she was trying to power every single shot they mentioned it repeatedly on the broadcast that there wasn't a big diversity in her game at one point she was just trying to rip everything yeah, well and that's all you know you say she's fighting herself almost more so than the opponent and you know not taking any way anything away from the opponent who played very well but that's how it often feels when you're watching Bianca Andreescu these days right is that whether it's health whether it's mental whatever it is just trying to get her game straight it's more about can she overcome her own barriers? Then can she overcome the opponent a lot of the time? Hopefully she has a great run in this tournament. It was great to see last night. It was an excellent day on court for Canada in general. Vasek Pospisil pulled an upset yesterday. The Canadian veteran who's known more for his international play for this country than he is for anything he's done singles-wise. He's been a very good doubles player over the years, but he pulls off a first-round upset. Chapo cruised yesterday. We already knew Felix was through. It was a really good day for Canada on the court, but I wanted to talk Bianca first and foremost. One, because she's the highest ranked of all of them, and she's someone who has closed in a Grand Slam tourney, but also because that, to me, was the cherry on top of what was a phenomenal month for Canadian women. Yeah, it really was. We talked about that a little bit in the opening segment, right? Book ended by the Canadian women's soccer team with an incredible performance in Tokyo, and then last night with the Canadian women's hockey team, and also Bianca Andreescu. You know, it, look, it's it's the opening rounds of the U.S. Open, right? So obviously it doesn't compare in that sense, but again, showing the determination, the strength, the guts, all of that that have made her a champion in the past. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Leila any. Fernandez. She was excellent again yesterday as well. We've got high hopes for her in this country. Tim McAuliffe joins us every single Wednesday, the host of Tim and Friends, and he's here again today. Timmy, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I am very well, gentlemen. How are you? Excellent. We are excellent as we roll into September on the heels of a hot August. My thesis, Canadian women rule. Would you care to contribute? It's funny. I wrote the same note to my team earlier today. Uh, Canadian women continue to kick ass and take names. Uh, It's wonderful to see, and uh, I'm glad that we can celebrate um, not just the success, but the opportunity uh, to succeed, which we give in this country. And I think far too often we downplay those opportunities and 
Scotty, you know I've spent a lot of time in U sports, and I've dealt with a lot of ADs who, you know, put their neck out to make sure that women were represented in all of the sports that they were putting forward. And uh, I think that trickles down, and we're starting to see the effects of a lot of people who really uh, put their foot down and said we need uh, equal representation in these sports. And I don't think it's any, uh, any it's not, it, this is no coincidence that we're seeing at the Olympics and beyond and now our women's national team succeeding at this level. And I think that we can't forget uh, in succeeding at the top and celebrating those, success, those successes at the top that we don't forget about the grassroots people who made it all possible. It's very true. And unfortunately for Canadian women, that's where they've existed for the most part. And they are in the spotlight more. There's more attention given. They are leading this country and they've been doing so for quite some time. Christine Sinclair brought it up. Female hockey players have brought it up. Tim, is there enough momentum from this right now to get a domestic league in either soccer or hockey or perhaps both on the women's side of things? Uh, I think it's a matter of time before you see all of what you're speaking of. And I think what, what we fail to do oftentimes, and I, from my experience uh, at the grassroots and working with youth sports and trying to draw attention to sports that, that don't get the mainstream attention. I have a passion for Canadian soccer uh, on both sides, men and women. I have a passion for Canadian basketball almost because of this lack of attention. And uh, sometimes what we do with uh, women's sports is that we, we sell them for things that they aren't. And last night was a wonderful example of what it is. And too often times we're, we're sitting, you know, with these sports that don't get that same, um, that same sort of attention and attempting to say that they're things that they aren't. And all you need to do is look at what that game was yesterday and say that there is room for it. And I think we'll have a WNBA franchise or two in Canada very soon. And I think that, you know, whether what league it is or who runs that league, whether it's the NHL, which I think it will be very soon running the league, um, I think we're going to see this at every level uh, for women's sports professionally. And I think it's, it's about time, and I think that there's enough of an audience for it. Focusing back on that gold medal game last night, Tim, you know, Marie-Philippe Pallant wins it with just a, literally a perfect snipe in overtime for the, to, for the golden goal, and you nice. just run down her resume, and all of a sudden you look at it. I mean, <laughs> is there any Canadian athlete who has a better clutch resume, in, like in history, oh. really, than Marie-Philippe Pallant does at this point? No, tell tell me there's no such thing as clutch, and then explain Mary Philippe. Like, <laughs> like it is uncanny, and like how many people who watch enough that just tweeted, of course. Like I don't think Jamie I've ever seen uh, an athlete come through in the clutch more. Like and ponder the weight between these moments for Mary Philippe Poulain, and quite possibly she is just the greatest women's player that we've ever seen. And by virtue of being the greatest women's player that we've ever seen, she's going to score. But like to go out of this tournament after taking a slap shot to the neck because she's blocking a shot. And I don't know, I think it was a five, nothing game. Like 
everything that you could ever point to as clutch screams what Mary Philippe Poulain has done, and she's had to wait, you know, every four years to do it or every two years to do it. And that makes it even more impressive than just looking at the resume and saying, oh, yeah, she scored big goals in big games. Well, I think we all learned a lesson as well, right? Which is that if she acts like the goal is in, everyone just assumed that the goal is in. She she knows yeah. better than any of us if she's scored. Patrick Kane-like, eh? Like, yeah, exactly. The, the person who shot it, if they are a legit goal scorer and they say it's in, I eh, just probably believe it. Yeah, just just believe it. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about last night is Scotty and I were kicking this around a little bit or in the first segment of the show. They used three-on-three in overtime in the gold medal game. And, you know, understandably, that makes some people nervous because, ah, is it too gimmicky? Is this going to feel wrong for the gold medal to be decided in this way? It ended up being really entertaining. What did you think about it? And do you think that's something the NHL should consider even in the Stanley Cup playoffs? Uh, I'm, so let me, let me preface this. I think it's a wonderful question, a wonderful debate, and I would love to have it without yelling and screaming. I am a huge proponent of three-on-three. I think we should do away with the shootout in the NHL. It's run its course. Give us 10 minutes of three-on-three. I will take it. I just think that there's an evolution of three-on-three that will take place like there is for uh, the shootout, where it becomes such a specialty and so refined that it loses its luster. Like We even see it already in the NHL where – um, teams are so hesitant to give up possession that they will circle back. They will they continue to hold on to it. And that free flow that we first saw in three-on-three is being coached out of players. So I, for me, one of the beauties of winning the Stanley Cup is the marathon that it is and the sacrifice that goes into the marathon. So while I'm all for three for three, uh, or while I'm all for three-on-three, and even in a tournament where it's one-off games, like win and move on, I think the lore of the NHL is different. The lore of the playoffs is different. I think it's more about the marathon than the sprint that was the world championships. So I'm okay with it in world championships, but there's something different that the NHL sells us. And to me, it's about the sacrifice, and a 3-OT game is just part of that sacrifice. Right, and I don't think there's any conversation to be had today about the NHL going to three-on-three in the playoffs because I don't think people are willing to have that conversation, Tim. But what was interesting about last night's three-on-three overtime, I feared exactly what you talked about. Okay, three-on-three, gold medal line, they're going to set it up. It wasn't that way at all. They were aggressive, and maybe that's because of the urgency of what's on the line. We better score before they do because there's so much ice here, and it makes me wonder if we should have a conversation about four-on-four in NHL playoff overtime. Not three-on-three, that's too gigantic a leap. But four-on-four, would it increase the offensive mindset of teams as opposed to the defensive construct we usually see? Hey, we better protect our own first. In the playoffs or in the regular season, Scotty? In the playoffs. In the playoffs. Because the regular season, it's not high stakes enough. It really isn't. And you can take your time right now because you might want to play for the shootout. But when you know that's not even a possibility, maybe it changes the construct of what you're trying to do. That's why I get rid of the shootout in the regular season. Because I think that there are teams that think, well, we can still win in the shootout, so don't make the mistake that's going to get you benched. Like, I or is not going to let you go out in a three-on-three where you can pad your stats and add numbers, right? Like, if you get three-on-three ice time, it's a great ability to add numbers 
and add salary. So I think that's a huge part of what's going on in the overcoaching and the not giving up um, opportunities is because you, you want that ice time really, really badly. If you take away the shootout, you make it more offensive because that's where the points are available. If you don't score here, you're not getting those two points, and the shootout affords that for you. For the playoffs, I'm sorry, bud. I'm, I'm, I am as progressive as they come. I am a traditionalist in this manner. I, I want to see Kelly Rudy out there until he's lost 45 pounds of sweat <laughs> into that headband that he's wearing. Okay? I, I'm sorry. I, I think that I'll never forget watching um, that game in my grandmother's viewing room at an old folks' home and the nurses coming over and saying, you have to leave, young man. And I said, no, I'm not leaving. This game is – and them continuing to do that, and I will never forget that. And I think those moments are very, very sacred, and I don't want to let go of them. I'm sorry. I, I yeah. want five on five, and I don't care if they clog up the neutral zone. I don't care. I think, hey, I would go to four on four full time before I would go to overtime four on four in the playoffs. Interesting, because I've generally been on your side of the argument. I find myself, after watching what I watched last night, more willing today to consider it. And I watched that epic Kelly Rudy Easter game as well. It was fantastic, and that's yeah. my most cherished overtime memory as a kid, even though those were neither of my teams. I have mm-hmm. less I have less affection yeah. for, say, the Keith Primo game winner that went on forever between the Flyers and the Penguins. Tim McAuliffe joining yeah. us here today as he does every single week. There's so much to get to, so we're going to move from hockey to football. There are a lot of layers to the Cam Newton cut, whether it's his legacy, whether it's the decision to go with Mac Jones, whether it's the part of it that was vaccination-related. What component of it is most interesting to you? I'll circle back on the vaccination uh, very quickly because I wondered if that was part of the equation. Today, Bill Belichick said that was not part of the equation. Bill Belichick went on to say some things about vaccinations Mm -hmm. that the media is making too much of a big deal about it. In other news, uh, the New England Patriots will no longer wear equipment because they still get injured while wearing their helmets and pads. (laughs) So why wear them? They'll go out without helmets and pads for the entire season. Uh, I, I will say that I think that the biggest news on this one is the legacy of Cam Newton and the wondering of that style of quarterback being able to um, play that way at that level. Um, and I think it's a damn shame because I enjoy the running quarterback that can also throw. And I think we're seeing more and more hybrids of that. I think Patrick Mahomes is a hybrid of that. And I think that's the prototypical uh, quarterback. I just wonder how many of the Cam Newton, um, I'll put Doug Flutie into that mix, uh, Lamar Jackson. uh, Are we going to see that quarterback in this league or because people can't have their 15-year starter do that, will they shy away from it? I think it's a, a, a really interesting question uh, for the NFL moving forward. Right. We had a lot of people push back on the listener inbox yesterday from both Calgary and Vancouver saying, hey, Carolina ruined him. This is their fault. I pushed back at them, Tim, because I think that's overblown. Cam Newton is such a rare specimen in 
in the fact that he's big and he could truck people. And most of the players you're talking about, they don't do that. And so, like Russell Wilson, if you're going to survive and have a long career, you have to not only be choosy about when you run, but when you get down, when you get out of bounds. And as long as you develop that skill, I don't think the running quarterback, the dual threat, is going anywhere. Um, so is is Russell Wilson like that, or is he the hybrid? Because I would, I would call him the hybrid, where he's an effective, efficient passer with the ability to run. I would put him in the same group as Patrick Mahomes. Um, I'm talking about the guy that can get me out of the seat when you flush him out of the pocket, and I'm thinking this guy can go 80. That, that to me, was Cam Newton in his prime. That was Michael Vick. Um, that's Lamar Jackson. And I think, like, I don't think Carolina ruined him. I think Cam Newton had to play that way to be as effective as he possibly could be and win an MVP. And it worked to a certain extent, to a large extent, for Carolina. Washington ruined um, Robert Griffin III. Yes. Uh, by throwing him out there when he wasn't healthy. And that's, that's the quarterback. You know, that's the mix where it's so hard to be Wilson and Mahomes. They're, you can count them on one hand, the, the guys that can do that well. Josh Allen is developing into that, right, where he's that hybrid. He can get people worried about his efficiency. Um, but now he's, he's picking that up. That, to me, is maybe the most exciting position in sports. And I don't want that to go out in the NFL, and I'm worried that that might be the lesson of Cam Newton, Robert Griffin III, um, and other running quarterbacks who aren't uh, Russell Wilson. And Mahomes has already been banged up a little bit too. Tim, I want to uh, switch quickly to the world of golf. The PGA announced yesterday some new rules designed to – uh, get fans to give Bryson DeChambeau a little bit of a break on the course, right? And now yelling Brooksy at him, as we saw a lot at the BMW Championship on the weekend. That's going to be grounds for getting you kicked out of the tournament. I guess for me, there's a couple of questions here. I mean, one is, if you accept that the PGA has a legitimate problem they need to address here, is this the best way to go about it? But even beyond that, I mean... Is the fact that fans are yelling and heckling one specific golfer, is that something that even needs to be addressed by the PGA? I think because Bryson wants it addressed, it does need to be addressed. I don't know that this is the way to address it. Um, I think that Bryson needs to come out and say something himself, but I don't know that he necessarily has those skills, and that's why this continues to exist in the way that it exists. Listen, it, it, it seems as though he's pretty socially awkward, but he um, is strong in his opinions and what he believes and all those things. And sometimes that just doesn't gel with fans. And I, I listen, if it really, really bugs him, there's other ways to go about it. But I grew up when people yelled no love at Davis Love because he didn't like that people yelled no love to Davis Love. And so... Like, the way to go about ending this is not to say you can't do it. You can't do something that seems so harmless is the way you get people to completely and utterly react the way that you don't want them to react. I, I just think that the PGA Tour needs to go hire some PR firm or a psychologist and figure out the best way to do it because I guarantee you 
that the results of this will be more people yelling Brooksy than there were before. Yeah, it definitely seems like, as I made the comparison earlier in the week, right? It's like if you're if you're getting bullied at school and the teacher brings you in front of the class to ask everyone not to bully you, it's probably going to backfire a little bit, unfortunately. And that seems to be the case here for Bryson DeChambeau. I mean, the other debate we've been having on the show this week is when does when does heckling cross the line from something that you're kind of entitled to do as a sports fan who's paid your money to get in to a legitimate problem that's going too far and, and something that, you know, whether it's the PGA or any other uh, league or association needs to actually take steps to stop. We know what it is. Like, this is, this is the part that, that and I, I get why this is important. And I guarantee you that Barstool and other um, people that exist in these um, – I don't want to call them fringes because Barstool is bigger than that, but people that, that exist in the margins, how about that, are going to be posting people videoing themselves saying Brooksy all the time. And if you go to an event, as we have gone to a thousand times, there is a self-governing that goes on, right? Like people look, if you go too far, people look at you like, what are you doing? And I don't know if we need to legislate this or it's, it's almost to me like we're trying to legislate common sense. And as much as many of us would love to do it, uh, I don't think you can. And I think that, that all of the grown-ups in the building just need to look at the person stepping too far across the line and say, stop it, you jackass. And, I don't know that enough people are doing that these days. And I don't think that booing major leaguers is a step too far. And I have, I think that I've proven over my 20 year career, I have a lot of empathy for athletes and what they go through. And I, there is a definite line that can be crossed oftentimes, but I don't think booing or calling a guy Brooksy is stepping over that line. I think that's, you know, good fun and accountability when it comes to, say, the New York Mets. Right, and 99.5% of it to me was just fine on the weekend, and I think it was to him, as much as I'm not a Bryson fan, I thought the fan who waited for his back to be turned but made sure he was in earshot after, he just helped put on an epic display of golf, which was a lot of fun to watch. Just give him that moment, but the guy waited till his back was turned, waited till he was past him, not face-to-face, and he yelled it. I've said this, and it was figurative more than literal. Like, that's the type of thing that gets you a punch in the face in that moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, could we define it as such? Like, anything yes. that would get you a punch in the face in the moment from a normal human being, you should stop. I think right. we, we could right. apply that to Twitter, Instagram, like, <laughs> anything that is in old school terms worthy of a punch in the face or that you wouldn't say to someone's face. Don't say it. It's been my, honestly, Scotty, that's been my rule on TV for a long time. Like, if I don't have the guts to say that to someone's face, don't say it on the air. Amen. Amen to that. Before we let you go, have you and your son filled out his application for Bishop Sycamore yet? <laughs> <laughs> what, what an un, like, can we just ignore the fact that it's an unbelievably sad story? Yes. And just focus yeah. on the part that this is an unbelievable story of people lying in order to get 
a fake high school on national TV. I think like the the situation that would allow something like this to happen is such a wake up call that no one wants to actually have. They just want to do the Bishop Sycamore memes. And I'll be honest with you, I've laughed at most of them. I'm with you. And we detailed the sad part of the story because there's a lot of families and kids that were affected by oh, this, and it's it's really disgusting. awful, and we don't have time to get into it here today. But, yeah, it's going to be a thing for a very long time. Someone's already producing shirts. People are buying them. Of course they are because that's where we are in 2021. <laughs> the uh, Cam Newton will start for Bishop Sycamore got me yesterday. <laughs> we, we now have Bishop Sycamore's next starter. And then they put the picture of Cam Newton. <laughs> Love it. Timmy, yeah. I always appreciate your time, man. Happy September. Be well. We'll talk in a week's time. Scotty, Jamie, always a pleasure. Vancouver, Calgary, the same. I wish you a gif. That is Tim McAuliffe, host of Tim and Friends, which you, of course, can catch on Sportsnet. We got into a lot there. Good feedback coming in. We'll get to it next. Plenty more stories to get into as well. A little Canadian connection to a cut and a transaction today we'll mention that as we go on here and is it an epic iconic celebration i'll ask jamie next right here on rintoul and sermon with jamie dodd now back to rintoul and sermon most of us have come a long way from the 80s most of us but those huge uplifting crowd-pleasing tracks never get old this is not from the 80s it's just that that's kind of where it was born you'll find songs like this one on the Headliners playlist, it's on Apple Music, plus more fist bumpers, rock anthems. Listen to the Headliners playlist on Apple Music. Jamie, I say most of us have come a long way because I find myself wearing an Expo 86 t-shirt today. You know, Scott, I was actually just going to ask you, would you say Would you say that you yourself have come a long way since the 80s? I would like to think I have. Apparently, my clothing <laughs> has not. My clothing has apparently not come that far. And that, and the t-shirt is from Expo 86, not just like a, a throwback, but more recently produced one? It is. Quick story. Wow. I had an original Expo 86 t-shirt, wore it threadbare a few years ago for my birthday. My wife went on eBay or Etsy or one of those sites, and she found someone who had preserved same color, wow. same size in the packaging because people do this. Collectors do this. Those yep. people who have, oh, I've got a Wayne Gretzky rookie card that's in mint condition. Why didn't you do this? Because I was throwing it against a wall trying to win other cards. That's why. But there are people <laughs> like that out there, and that was my birthday present for my wife, mainly because she was sick of seeing me wear the threadbare version of the <laughs> shirt. She told me she could see freckles through my shirt. That's enough said. Yeah. No. Well, that, that's a very thoughtful gift, though. That's awesome. People don't like that image. I will get it out of your mind. And like the Bishop Sycamore story, Tim said, hey, can we just ignore the sad part of this story yes. and focus on the fun part of this story? I think in a different way, this fits into that category. Blair Turnbull getting her gold medal on a stretcher last night. She gets hurt in the post-game celebration. I don't know if it was an ankle or a knee. There have been varying reports. Dan, who texted in, I'm sorry, I don't have an update on her medical status. It was bad enough that she had to go to the locker room immediately while her team is celebrating one of the great moments you can have for that team in that sport, and she has to leave. And then Jocelyn LaRock, I loved it, Jamie. She gets her gold medal, immediately skates to the dressing room to go yeah. give that to Blair Turnbull, who then gets wheeled out back on the stretcher onto the ice so she can sing O Canada and be there with her teammates. 
I mean, it's an iconic image. It really is. And you're right. It's also kind of sad because, you know, you don't want to see anyone get injured ever, let alone in the celebration in that kind of joyful moment to have that ruined a little bit. But the image of her coming out on the stretcher and, and, you know, she's all smiles, right? Which is what makes it work. She's thrilled to be there. She's so excited that she could come back out. That image is going to be iconic in Canadian hockey. And you could read her lips where she said, I'm so embarrassed. Like, you could literally read what <laughs> yeah. she was saying. I'm so embarrassed, yeah. but I want to be here. And don't be embarrassed. It sucks. It happens. It was an accident, of course. And I feel badly for her. I hope she's feeling okay today. The gold medal will certainly cause some of that pain to go away, or so I would think, at least emotionally. Yes, it definitely. It, it's okay. That was embarrassing, as I, as she said, and you know you don't want to get injured. But hey, I, I I still get to celebrate gold with my team, so that's something. I have been on the. I, I knew I'd be on the minority side of this day. I thought there'd be a little more support than there has been. Nine sixty nine sixty six fifty six fifty for what I asked earlier. Hey, are you any closer today after watching? The women play three-on-three overtime last night in the gold medal game, which was fantastic. It was an excellent, thrilling overtime. A great way to end what was an excellent game and a showcase of hockey last night in Calgary. Are you any closer today to thinking, I'd be okay if they tweak the playoff rules in the NHL for overtime? And I'm not saying three-on-three. I think that's too big of a leap mentally for everyone who follows hockey to go to. But four-on-four... I find myself, as we wake up on the first day of September, more willing to have that conversation. You shot it down, Jamie. McAuliffe shot it down. Most of our listeners find themselves on your side. I will read this text and get your reaction to it. Chris in Abbotsford says, If Wimbledon can get rid of endless fifth sets to improve the safety for players, the growth of viewership, then the NHL can get rid of what he calls endlessly boring overtime. I mean, if the Queen's Club can change, quote, tradition then a game with the fraction of the history can as well. And it's a fair point. And I'm definitely not someone who looks at sports in general and says, oh, never change, right? Like, there's always new ideas that are good ideas, right? And there's always ways you can tinker and improve things. I completely understand that. I just happen to really like 5-on-5 overtime in the playoffs, and he calls it endlessly boring. I disagree. Yeah, of course there are stretches in, you know, the fourth overtime where the hockey is not as sparkling and as crisp as you would like it. But it's the endurance element. And and as Tim McCallis said, you know, part of the, the mythos of sacrifice that you need to win the Stanley Cup, it plays right into that, and that makes it enjoyable. It's a spectacle. It's a novelty. It makes you think of all those great games that you stayed up for in the past. So I really like it. It's not about, no, no, the sport can never change. Yeah, of course the sport can change. I've been a proponent for the sport to change in a lot of different ways. I just happen to really enjoy this element of it. Scott Rintoul is Jamie Dodd. You can get in on the conversation at any point in time. It was fun last night. It was a great end to what was an excellent tournament. And, yes, it helps that our country won, Jamie. It certainly helps our discussion today. I didn't get a chance to ask Tim that this. He kind of answered it without me asking, but I wanted to pose it to you as well. Haley Wickenheiser is the greatest women's hockey player of all time. Fair? Yeah, that's what I, that would be my answer. That's general consensus right now, and the case for it is pretty deep. Pretty deep case. Does Marie-Philippe Poulain have a case? Whether she wins the argument or not, does she have a legitimate case to be in that conversation? I think she does. And, you know, you can do the deep dive into the statistics, and I think also when you're talking about this, there's also the trailblazer argument, right, which... 
lends more weight to the Haley Wickenheiser, Wickenheiser side of the debate. But I think if you just look at her track record of excellence and dominance, and then you add in what she's done in clutch situations, in big games, the, the golden goal hat trick, as you put it, in the first segment, I think you have to at least have Marie Philippe Pilant as part of the conversation. Again, whether or not you ultimately decide that she gets the nod, I don't think it's inappropriate at all to put her in the conversation. We had Haley Salvion on a couple of weeks ago to tee this tournament up, and we certainly have covered it along the way and watched Canada and done some analysis. And one of my comments to Haley, and I found myself thinking this again last night, as Marie-Philippe Lynn added yet another accomplishment to her already stacked resume, she's only 30 years old, Jamie. It feels yeah. like she's older because when she burst onto the scene – in, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, when she was coming up with the under-18s and the national women's program, and then she does what she did in 2010, okay, now you're part of the national consciousness, and it feels like she should be older than 30. She could keep playing for a while. Absolutely. She could keep adding to her resume, right? And that's why I think it's fair to have her in the conversation. You're kind of assuming that she's still got a lot of good years left, right? So when you look at her resume already and her track record already, it gets her there, and then you can kind of say, and she's not done. She's just going to keep adding to all of this. I'd be surprised if she was done. There's an Olympics coming up. Maybe she yep. wants to go for a couple more world championships. I don't know. I think it was a little different when Christine Sinclair said after the Olympics, when, when all of us said there's your crowning moment of what has been arguably the greatest career in soccer – that's the way to go out. And she said, no, I still want to keep playing. Christine yep. Sinclair is much older than than Marie-Philippe Poulin, so that was a little more surprising. And I think we can draw a parallel between the two as well for our country, can't we? Oh, I think we can, for sure. Now, again, it's different because you look at Christine Sinclair. I mean, one, her her resume. How can you Really, how can you compare anyone to it almost? But she also, you get the feeling that Christine Sinclair kind of single-handedly elevated the program of Canadian women's soccer in this country in a way that I don't know if you can point to one individual women's hockey player doing the same thing because there have been so many excellent players. But I think other than that, yeah, it is a good comparison. Yeah, she is Christine Sinclair. I agree with exactly what you said, and she's on my Mount Rushmore of Canadian athletes. And if we're talking about the Mount Rushmore of Canadian female athletes – Marie-Philippe Poulin certainly deserves some consideration there. would be a good debate between her and Haley Wickenheiser as well in that regard. I'll tell you, those are my two defining moments for 2021 August, though. Canada women winning soccer gold and what we saw last night, those are the two things I will remember first and foremost. And there's a lot of sporting activity over the course of this past month, None. but those are at no, the top of my list. No doubt about it. Those That will be what stands out. I mean, just think of how long, how long in coming the soccer win was right like going back all the way to the roots in that 2012 games uh in the london olympics that is going to be an iconic moment for sports fans in this country and i think that marie philippe poulin goal from last night will be as well just because it was so perfect it's the first time they beat the americans in that tournament in so long you know in the gold medal game obviously they beat them in the round robin game so you're right both of those moments are going to be ones that we remember for a long time and that's not to diminish any of the other accomplishments. What Andre DeGrasse did last month was crazy. And in any other Olympics, maybe that would be at the top. Yep. And for some of our listeners, maybe that is at the top. But the Canadian women's soccer team, yet again, I find defines the Olympics for me. 
I mean, you could throw Damian Warner in there too, right? Agreed. When he did the decathlon in incredible fashion. That, in a lot of years, that would be the defining moment of an Olympic Games for Canada. Easily, right? Doing what he did in an event with that significance and that kind of prestige. But you're right. I think because we had the emotional buildup over a period of years and years and years with the Canadian soccer team, that's going to stick out as the defining one. And we did have a couple of texts about it as well. Don't worry. We're going to be talking Canadian national soccer tomorrow as qualifying gets going in Toronto. That will be a part of our conversation. No question. Let's get to what they're saying. Even if they'd known it went in immediately, it would have been an iconic goal for Canada because as you labeled it, Jamie, it was a perfect shot by Marie-Philippe Poulin. A great goal, one that you will not forget anytime soon. But it's made more memorable by the fact that they kept playing and she seemed to be the only (laughs) one in the building that knew it was in. I know I trusted her from my couch and I was happy to get the reinforcement from video a little bit later on. But here was the hero for Canada last night, Marie-Philippe Poulin, talking about that weird period after she knew it had gone in, but no one else seemed to. Well, that helped when the buzzer happened, but... (laughs) Uh, I kind of knew uh, it went in. Uh, I saw it. Um, but, yeah, uh, it felt very good, to be honest, when that buzzer happened. Obviously, a little bit moment where you question yourself if you saw the right thing. But uh, when everybody jumped on the ice, being able to celebrate as a group, uh, there's no better feeling, that's for sure. Such a weird situation. She goes to the yeah. bench, and she knows what's going on. And I imagine she's telling her coach and her teammate, that was in, that was in, I know that was in. And yet everybody else on the ice, because it hasn't been called that way, they have to keep playing in the chance right. that perhaps she's wrong. No, they got to. I mean, the play starts going the other way, right? So you got you got to look sharp. Okay, if just on the off chance that it didn't go in, we got to keep playing as if this game is still going in. But yeah, I mean, it's funny to hear her say, you know, she there's even a little bit of doubt that creeps in, right? When nobody else is reacting that, which makes perfect sense. But yeah, she knew it. She knew it as soon as she let it go. Peter Lombardi's told a good story this morning on radio about he was in the building last night, as many others were who were covering this event in Calgary. And before the buzzer actually goes, they were seated not too far away from Scott Salmon, who is director of the national teams in this country. And he was yelling at the video coach because he wanted to know, was that in, was it not? So they kind of found out up there a little bit, just a brief bit before we found out at home with the buzzer that it had actually gone in. But pretty cool story that he relayed. Yeah, that is cool. And you can just imagine the reaction from the brass for Hockey Canada, just desperate for a for a review, for a replay. Oh, my goodness. Like, did we just win this tournament? What's happening? What's happening? Also on radio this morning, Dave Dickinson, former quarterback for both the Stampeders and the Lions, and now the head coach of the Stamps in Calgary. Dickinson did an extended interview this morning on 960, and he had this to say now that NFL cuts have come down today about the possibility of bringing players in immediately. Yeah, I think we need it. I think we need it at certain positions, and we got to find it. And we also we're not sure about our some of our guys that have been down there. We say our guys, we don't own them, but I think we we sure hope they would give us a look if they want to come back. And uh, we we want good football players. We have to be respectful of what's in the locker room and the effort and the intensity and what these guys are sacrificing to be up here. But. We know it's a, a business where you, you know, it's, they always say the Jimmys and the Joes over the, the X's and O's, meaning the players, you've got to have that, those special guys. And uh, ultimately we think some of those guys might be available now and we'll just see how it plays out. But certainly um, a little di- more difficult with COVID and protocols and all that, but we've got to be looking, we've got to increase our talent level at certain positions. And hopefully some guys want to be a part of the Calgary Stampeders. 
So there's a couple of things here that are of interest to me, Jamie, because Dave Dickinson most years says, well, we got a lot of guys here, and yeah, maybe if somebody fits in and the practice roster and all that stuff, he admits flat out there, no, we need it. Yeah. If you listen to the whole interview, he said earlier in the interview, our pass rush isn't good enough. We're getting no pressure from the outside. That has to change. I imagine that's what they're prioritizing when they're looking for free agents to come into Calgary. So that is interesting. But then what he said at the end is interesting as well. And it's easy to forget that when you're trying to bring in replacements and get some help roster-wise, oh, yeah, there are COVID protocols yeah. to clear here. And and as, as we talked about yesterday, if you are a free agent suddenly – you are in a much better position if you are double vaccinated just from a competitive standpoint than those who have chosen not to get vaccinated. Well, and that's true in the NFL, but you got to think it's especially true for players who are yes. potentially, you know, got cut in the NFL coming back to Canada because there's the border crossing issue, right? And so that adds a whole other layer of complexity to it. And this is also a league which has just, you know, had one team deal with a significant COVID outbreak. So you also know that pretty much all the teams and the league itself are going to be extra, extra cautious at this particular point in time than they normally would be. I do also wonder if, you know, as you say, normally in a, nor in a normal year, Dave Dickinson doesn't come out and say, oh man, we need help from guys that just got cut. From the NFL, I wonder if because it's happening earlier in the season for the CFL this year, right? Because the season started so much later, it makes it a little easier to contemplate. Hey, actually, we need to bring some guys in for the rest of our season here. Well, and you haven't had a chance to accrue as many wins, and the Stamps could have won yeah. each of their games. They could have lost each of their games. They've just got the one W on the season, but because it's a 14-game schedule, there's more urgency to make it happen right now and not ease yeah. guys in on the roster. And to your point about what Edmonton's been going through with its isolation, they're supposed to go back to their training facility today. They just cut a guy yesterday, and there are allegations out there that the reason Jacob Ruby was released is that he faked his vaccination status. Yeah, and at the very least that he was um, dishonest when the team asked him, said he was vaccinated even though he hadn't been. And this just came down uh, not that long ago, about half an hour ago, while we're doing our show, uh, Scotty, as well, that the CFL has banned teams from signing Jacob Ruby for the remainder of the year. So not only did he get cut by the Elks as part of, you know, and they explicitly came out and said it's because he did not follow COVID protocols. And then, of course, the reporting came out that he had lied to them about his vaccination status. And now the league has stepped in and said this guy cannot play at all in the league this year. This is a very big conversation going on both sides of the borders with football in particular. It's in the crosshairs of the NFL. And just before we get to what Bill Belichick said today, Tim alluded to it a little bit earlier in the first hour of the show. Should mention UBC product Dakota Shepley. He was on the San Francisco 49ers practice roster previously. He was on waivers. I think they wanted to keep him in San Francisco on the PR this year. Seattle claimed him today. So he's moving a little closer to where he played his university football. He's moving up the coach. We wish him all the best. Cam Newton gets released yesterday, and part of the discussion was about whether his vaccination status played a role in that. Here's what Bill Belichick had to say when asked today. Did Cam's vaccination status have anything to do with him being released? No. no I mean, look, you guys keep talking about that, and, you know, I would just point out that I don't know what the number is. I mean, you guys can look it up. You have the access to a lot of information, but the number of players and coaches and staff members that have, um, you know, been infected by COVID in this training camp who have been vaccinated is a pretty high number. So I, I wouldn't lose sight of that.
So that's Belichick trying to spin the story in a different direction, Jamie, because that's not him blatantly saying, hey, it's okay to be unvaccinated, but he's trying to deflect a little bit here. And if you do the research on, I don't have all the numbers in front of me. It's, it's less about whether you're going to get COVID if you happen to be vaccinated. It's more about what results afterward. And we can talk about that from a health standpoint, but the NFL has made it so much more punitive if you're not vaccinated and you get it or you're in direct contact with somebody and you don't happen to be vaccinated. That's the competitive advantage we're talking about here. Yeah, and also, you know, Belichick saying, well, so many of the people who've got it have been vaccinated. I mean, that's because, you know, when you're talking about staff and coach and coaches in addition to the players, well over 90% of the people you're talking about have been vaccinated, right? Exactly. So, of course, if you're just looking at it, there's large numbers. Like, that. that's because there's such a bigger pool of vaccinated people to draw from. It's a little bit like saying, and Tim McAuliffe alluded to this a little bit as well, but it's a bit like saying, well, you know, 100% of players who get injured in the game are wearing pads, right? And it's like, yeah, that's because everyone's wearing pads, right? So, yes, of course, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of players who are wearing pads that get injured. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The other element here is that, you know, he was asked directly, did you consider that? And he says no. I think the context is that Urban Meyer down in Jacksonville came out on cut day and said, yeah, that was something we considered. And the NFLPA didn't take too kindly to that. They said they were going to look into it. Then Jacksonville had to walk back that statement and said, oh, no, no, that was, you know, that's not really what he meant to say. So this is also Bill Belichick just trying to shut down any controversy on that point whatsoever. Because what Urban Meyer voiced is logical. And this has nothing to do with whether you believe in vaccination or not. You and I have made our feelings on it pretty clear. We obviously do. There are some of our listeners who do not. This isn't even about that. This is about how can I make my business function in the best manner possible how can i mitigate risk and that's what urban meyer admitted yesterday was yeah the rules are such that if something happens with unvaccinated players it's really really punitive and if it happens to a vaccinated player it's not as punitive so if we want to put ourselves in the best possible position as an organization it makes sense for us to have as many players vaccinated as possible because those are what the rules are yeah, exactly. And he, all he did was spell out what everyone knows is the case, right? And I guess, you know, you're kind of, but because it's not actually mandated by the league and the PA didn't agree to that, you're not really supposed to acknowledge that that's the case. But of course that's the case. Everyone is thinking that. Bill Belichick has had that thought process, even though he doesn't want to admit it in front of the media. Unreal. Unreal. And of course, I get why the NFLPA says we have to open an investigation because they have players who are unvaccinated. And if their membership has a call like that whatsoever, that's their due diligence, even though they've agreed to the protocols that happen to be in place. Yeah. Well, and they've agreed to the protocols that have incentivized teams to act that way. Right. Like You can't put these protocols in place and then expect teams not to take it into account when they're making roster decisions. Well, that was a really interesting point that was made yesterday on the program that the NFLPA, Doug Farrar said it, that they probably felt like they won when it was not going to be mandated that all their players be vaccinated. It's not as much of a victory because of what has followed subsequently as what they had originally anticipated. Yeah, exactly, because it's put teams in this position where – Okay, you can't admit it, but yeah, when you when you're making marginal decisions and it's really close between two guys, yeah, every single team in the league is going to take their availability into account. Of course they are. It's a birthday for one of the premier players in the game. Is he going to get the same treatment? Should he get the same treatment that one of the other star players in the NHL got in recent times? We'll talk about it next right here on Rintoul and Dot.
Well, Rin Tool and Sermon with Jamie Dodd anyway. Now back to Rin Tool and Sermon. There's a report out there from the three-letter network that Blair Turnbull's injury is a broken fibula that she suffered last night in the post-game celebration. I hadn't seen that when we talked about it half an hour ago. Just wanted to pass that on to our listeners. Some were wondering. I certainly was. One of our listeners so graciously gave us that information in the inbox this morning, Jamie. <laughs> yes, extremely graciously. <laughs> yeah. Purely out of, the, out of the goodness of their heart. Hope your day gets better, whoever you are. Unsigned texter. It's Rintoul and Dodd. We'll be joined by a recent retiree from the National Hockey League and has taken the next step in his hockey career in just one moment. He's teammates with the guy who's celebrating a birthday today most recently. Nathan McKinnon is 26 years old today, Jamie. I said this about uh, about Marie-Philippe Poulin. Does it feel like Nathan McKinnon's been around longer than that? Yeah, it does. I feel like that is often the case with guys who come straight to the NHL after being drafted, right? Then you look up eight, nine, ten years later, and you think, holy cow, right? Like, they've been around forever. They're still only this old? I mean, I know I've had that that feeling with lots of guys before, and especially because Nathan McKinnon is so good at what he does, he, he feels that way too. So, Nathan McKinnon, does he fall into the Alexander Ovechkin category yet? And Alexander Ovechkin got raked over the coals for a long time, because he didn't win. Like Alexander Ovechkin through the bulk of his career, Nathan McKinnon has never been past the second round of the playoffs. Should he have that type of scrutiny already? Do we look at it differently at all? Does it come down to a passport, Jamie? Did Ovechkin feel that simply because he's Russian and he's not a Canadian player? That's definitely part of it. The other part of it, and this is kind of funny because you think, what I'm about to say is that you know Nathan McKinnon wasn't an immediate impact top of the league player, right? Had the great rookie season. Then, as we all know, you know, took a step backward, didn't ascend to being one of the best three or four players in the world right away after that. Because of that, the expectations took longer to get put on him, right? Whereas Ovechkin was immediately a superstar. So immediately in year two, three, four, you're expecting him to do these big things at the team level. You know, Nathan McKinnon, it took a little longer for him to get to that level. So the expectations haven't had the same chance to grow as they did with Ovechkin. And yet in the last couple of years, haven't we looked at Colorado in a similar vein to how we looked at the Washington Capitals of, hey, man, this team is really good. This team should win. They haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, I think that's a fair comparison. And that that conversation is going to grow for sure. Someone who has more insight into that and much more in the National Hockey League. Recently retired. He joins us today. He has recently joined the Brandon Wheat Kings, his junior team. He's the new development coach for the Brandon Wheat Kings. He is Matt Calvert, and he's taken some time to join us today. Matt, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm actually uh, watching uh, the Wheat Kings skate before camp gets going next week as we speak. Diving into it right away. You're not going to take any rest now that you're a retiree, despite the fact you're only 31 years old. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I tried sitting around for a few months there. I've got a pretty significant back surgery, and uh, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sick of sitting around already. So it's time to get back to work and uh, you know, whatever capacity that may be here. Does it feel strange to say that at 31 years old, you've retired from your career? It does. Um, I I had hoped. I I don't think I was one of those guys that wanted to play forever and not be able to walk after. But uh, I'd hoped to get to about thirty three, thirty four, thirty five kind of age range. And um, yeah, I got uh, my boys starting hockey. My oldest boy and just starting school this year. So uh, just looking for that next thing to sink my teeth into. 
Well, congratulations on the gig, and we'll get into that throughout the course of this conversation. As you mentioned, your season was cut short last year, played just 18 games. You weren't able to participate in the playoffs, and you had back surgery. Just from a health standpoint, how are you doing right now? I'm doing better now. It was uh, it was three months of no bending, twisting, doing nothing other than walking, I guess, and laying around. So uh, I'm starting to feel better now. Got physiotherapy on the go. And, uh, you know, for, for a guy like myself that's had to – compete every day and try not to miss any workouts it's nice to be back in the gym and, and working towards a goal again and matt you said you're watching the week weekend skate a little bit before training camp gets going you've joined the organization so i mean you you're from brandon you played your major junior with the brandon uh-huh. Weekings. now you're back on staff as a coach how does it feel to be back in the fold with the organization Oh, it's awesome. It's nostalgic. It's uh, getting back in this rink, uh, trying to learn all the players' names right now and, you know, how, how they're going to play. And uh, a big part of my role is going to, you know, just try to develop them individually and also work with the coaching staff at the same time. So um, I want to see their weaknesses. I want to see their strengths and, and I want to help them get better. And, you know, if they want to get to that next level, I'll, I'll do everything in my power to, to help them do so. What was it about this opportunity right now that made it the right fit for you? Well, my main main goal right now is rehab and getting my back. Um, you know, I won't be able to hit the ice for a couple months here. So, you know, I'm going to try to help out with uh, the video side of things, work with the other coaches and, you know, talk to guys, kind of be around. And, and the big uh, enticing part for me is I've always been interested in the coaching side, but I've, I've been more interested in the development side and helping guys on a day-to-day basis as opposed to the, the system side of it and all that. So um, it's just, it's little things as a pro that, you know, you, you don't learn until you get there. And I hope to bring, bring all my knowledge and the stuff I, I learned in my experience and, and help them at a junior level and get them more prepared when, when they do make that next step of their career. Well, and I know, you know, we had, uh, for example, Mark Savard on the show a couple of weeks ago. He just took a job coaching in the OHL, and he really raved about his experience in Major Junior and the opportunity to give back and help these players, help these young kids grow both as players and as people, right? And is, is that kind of your mentality as well, where, as you said, you're excited to work with them individually and not just help them be better players, but also help them grow as people at a really crucial stage of their life? That absolutely now that it's uh and you say a crucial stage like these are 16 17 year old kids at the youngest and uh moving away from home sometimes you know in, in the western league sometimes you're from bc or, or the united states and you're in manitoba so uh you're living with new billets you're meeting new friends it, it's a lot to take in and and just like pro hockey it's a it's a roller coaster you're gonna have your your exciting weeks you're gonna have your down weeks and it's just it's helping them manage that and, and get through that and then also you know put as much as they can into their game and try to become the best hockey players on and off the ice as possible. Ten years in the show, 566 games regular season-wise in the National Hockey League. Matt Calvert joins us today on Rent to One Sermon with Jamie Dodd. What is it about the Wheat Kings organization that seems to breed such loyalty and passion from the alumni like yourself? Well, it's, it starts with culture. Um, you know, when I came here uh, my first year in the league, we were – we were expected to be bombing the barrel and we were first first by the time Christmas rolled around and that just it just comes from great leadership right from you know the owners management coaches right on down and, and I think hiring the right people and putting the right people in the right places so um when you're in Brandon Manitoba in the middle of winter honestly there's there's not much uh, else to do other than focus on uh, bettering yourself in hockey so I think uh when guys come here you know it's down to business and um and they get treated the right way and and they they're really excited once they they do line in Brandon 
Matt, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that there are things you don't know until you get to professional hockey that you would like to help with in the transition of some of these players who are hoping to achieve their dream and play in the National Hockey League. What were those things for you that you found out through experience that you would like to get to these players a little earlier? Well, what, one big thing for me where I got exposed was my, the defensive side of my game. I, uh, I always thought I was a, a good defensive guy in junior, even though I was trying to, trying to score goals the whole time. Uh, I got there and, uh, and it turned out I wasn't. So I, I had a lot to learn. Um, and, and a lot of it's just pairing, position, thinking the game in different ways. So I think that's the, the main thing I can really talk to these kids about is just, you know, making them better, making them more complete 200 foot players. And, and that's, uh, I would say that would be my main thing. And, and also treating your body the right way, getting in that routine, uh, you know, the, the small things like stretching, warming up, working out, just any, any, place I can help I will and uh, everyone's going to be in a different situation these kids come in so prepared nowadays anyways on ice uh, you know I, I think uh, the big part where I can help is off the ice so I, I look forward to it so what was that moment for you you were like a lot of players who make the National Hockey League a prolific scorer in junior but that wasn't what you did in the National Hockey League where where did the light bulb go on for you that oh boy my details better be a lot better defensively was it a coach that said it a veteran player or did you just realize it through experience I think a combination, uh, a coach for sure. Uh, Brad Larson, I, who's now the Columbus Blue Jackets head coach, he was my minor league coach. And uh, first year, I played 40, 42 games half the season. Thought I was an NHLer. Got a quick wake up call the next year. Got asked to do different things, and I just wasn't prepared for it. Um, and then the third year, uh, he just he said, "You, you got to buy in. You got to buy into the system." And I was kind of a guy that loved to freewheel, use my speed, and and I finally bought in. And he, he kind of said to me, he said. Calgary, if you're going to make it, you're going to make it as a third, fourth liner. And, you know, the possibility is endless after that, but you, you got to find a way to be relevant. And when he said that to me, it kind of sunk in, and I really started shifting my focus to become more of a complete player. And, and then once you get up there, there's there's so much talent in the top six. You just, uh, you know, you know you can bring that at times, but if you want to become a career NHL, you, you got to find a way to be relevant. And, and that's pretty much what I did my whole career. Well, and, you know, that transition for you, Matt, happened, you know, going from major junior to the professional ranks. But I'm sure even for players that you're going to deal with in Brandon, you know, most of the guys going to major junior were stars at lower levels, right? And had that same same transition where they're, they're, they're prolific scorers, but then they get to a higher level and they have to change. And, you know, that transition can happen for guys even as they enter major junior, right? Absolutely. Everyone here was the best player on their team coming out of Phantom and AAA major ranks, right? And and then everyone in the NHL or AHL is, is a star and junior for the most part. So the big part is checking your ego at the door. And, and that's, a, you know, I think pro hockey, when you get to the AHL, that's the hardest thing for a lot of guys. There's a, there's a lot of talent that, that never made it just because they couldn't accept a different role. And, and I think, uh, you know, you get a good mentor like, like I had in Brad Larson. And, you know, to, to my last year of my career, I still thought I could have been a scorer, but I, I knew what my job was and I knew what I had to do. And it's, uh, I don't think you ever lose that because, honestly, what's the fun part about playing hockey? It's, score, it's scoring goals and being the man, but not everyone can do that, especially when you get to the NHL. So I think it's uh, just accepting a role and, and relishing in that role and, and, and continue to try to get better every day. And, and, you know, you join the team at now as a development coach. And I think when a lot of our listeners hear that, they think skills, right? Helping the players with their skating, with their shooting, with all of that. But, you know, even in the press release that the team sent out, it says you're also going to be working with them on things like nutrition, education, mental health. 
you know, I think that's probably something that we've seen a lot more emphasis on over just the last 5, 10, 15 years is paying attention to, in particular, the mental health of athletes. How important is that going to be when you're doing the work with these young players? That's huge. And you talk about the skills. I, I have interest in that side for sure. And I got a thousand drills that I was always that guy that liked to stay out after practice, go before practice. There's, to me, that that's the easy stuff. It's the, you know, you bring up the mental health and the, the riding the roller coaster and uh, the competition and all that stuff. That's the, that's the stuff that these kids could really use men, a mentor for. And, uh, you know, I, I met some great people in my career that really helped me with, with that part of the game. And, and a lot of guys are looking at the, you know, they're looking at the final goal instead of, instead of worrying about the process. And I know it's cliche, but if you really focus on that day to day stuff and, and, you know, like, like I said, when you're in the AHL or when you're in junior, there's a guy might get power play time over you. A guy might get called up to the NHL over you. And it's how you deal with that. And a lot of guys dealt with that poorly. And uh, the guys that really focus on their game and, and worry about themselves seems to be seem to be the ones that make it. So, um, you know, I, I'm really excited to work with kids and get inside their heads and see how they think and, and what makes them tick. And, and that's, uh, that's going to be a, a real big part of my job. We've heard a lot about how the style of coaching, you know, at all levels of hockey, but even in major junior, AHL, NHL, how the style of coaching has changed in recent years, right? As, as players have changed and as players have demanded more communication and, and, you know, to be a bigger part of the process rather than maybe some of the old school styles that coaches used to have. Is that something that you witnessed over your, you know, 10 years or so in the NHL that the style of coaching really started to change while you were there? Completely. Um, you know, I went from a John Tortorella to a, a Jared Bednar as a head coach and just two different styles, you know, I obviously both had some success. And um, the, the big thing for me is it's, it's turned in. I, I hear comments, ah, kids these days, young kids don't want to work. Don't let, it, it's not that it's, I, I think that's an excuse for not being able to coach someone. I, I think the big thing is, is, is being able to manage different personalities. And to me, that's where you're going to find your, your best coaches in this era because Kids are involved. Kids are, to me, kids are so much more prepared coming in. Uh, a lot of them specialize in hockey since uh, since day one, since they're five or six years old. So um, a lot of what you have to worry about is managing them and, and getting the most out of them. And, um, you know, that's why I've been excited about this coaching staff so far. With Don McGill really in the way. He just, uh, you know, he understands that aspect of the game. And, uh, you know, he, he's going to work them. But I, I think a big thing is, is communication, talking to these kids and, and seeing how they feel and, and Every kid's going to be different. There's going to be one where you can yell at, and, and you know you might get the best out of them that game. They might need that that sparklet, and there's going to be other kids where you you have to you know you have to communicate with them and talk. So I, I think that's a huge advantage for guys to understand that, and it's just the way it's going, and it's the new generation. So um, I, I'm excited to keep learning on that side of things. Matt Calvert is the new development coach for the Brandon Wheat Kings. He joins us this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You mentioned a couple of your head coaches in the National Hockey League there, John Tortorella being one of them. What do people who aren't around him on a daily basis get wrong? Well, they, they see him in the media, so that's a, that's a different guy than what we see in the room. Um, you know, Torts never loved the media. Uh, I think he secretly does, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> at, the same, at the same time, um, now the thing with courts, the thing I always respected about him is w- when you, when you're a player and there's a coach, you, you might have a coach you absolutely love looking back on, but you're going to have your, your, <laughs> your tough times with them. It, it's a roller coaster. Sometimes they're not happy with you. Sometimes you're not happy with them. But the one thing courts wanted each and every day was he wanted to win. And no matter what game it was, game one, game 
30, game 82, or the playoffs. He wanted to win, and he, he does everything in his power to win. Do players love that at, at some times? No, they don't. Do players get hurt? You know, are, are they mad about it? Sour grapes? Yeah, absolutely. But um, the one thing is he wanted to get better every day, and, and that's one thing I really appreciate about towards. So I, I think a lot of times they just see the, you know, the face in the media and the voice, and, and they, they don't realize how much he really, really wants to put into it and how much he cares. You spent more of your years in Columbus than you did in Colorado. How would you compare your experiences in those two organizations? Well, completely different. Um, I think the way they handle their business is a, is a lot different. Uh, you know, with, with Joe at the helm and a guy that's been there and a guy that's won cups and obviously one of, one of the best to ever play. Just uh, a lot more relaxed in, in Columbus with the Armageddon line and John Torriello. It, it was a lot more in your face, you know, go crazy hard and, um, and then also different players, you know, in Colorado, I got to play with, uh, with some superstars, we, you know, Nathan McKinnon leading the way. And, um, and in Columbus, we were, we were kind of always searching for that guy. We, we had our Tammy Panarin for a couple of years when I was there and that was essentially going to be the superstar, but, um, two different styles. Uh, but I got to say my, my final few years in Colorado, what a, what a joy to be around those, those guys that are, you know, top of the league, like McKinnon, Rantanen, Landis Gog, Kale McCarr coming in the last few years. And, uh, just as a player, I'm sitting on the bench, marveled by my teammates and what they're doing out there. And, and at 30 years old, making me want to, to get better as a hockey player, uh, just because I, I want to be as good as these, you know, these 20, 25 year old kids, which, which I thought was pretty funny, but, um, it, it's just, uh, it, it was a special time. I, I really enjoyed, uh, finishing my career in Colorado. Columbus has the rap of, well, the best players in the league don't want to play there. Is that unfair? Yes, I, I, I believe it's unfair. Um, you know, it, it was hard in Columbus. The training camp was hard. Um, so, you know, there's a there's a side to guys that they, they don't want it hard. Everyone wants to win. But um, with Columbus, I think the big thing and why it was hard is, is because we needed to find an identity. We needed to change the culture. And I thought Torts and Yarmo combined did a great job of that. Yeah, there were some there were some tough training camps. Yeah, it, it was hard at times, but uh, I believe they created a culture. They, they have an identity of a team that it's hard to play against that defends well. And honestly, they're one of those teams. I, I think every team plays are just like, oh, we got to play the Columbus Blue Jackets, and and that's the start of things. But um, you know, they're obviously going through the rebuild now, and and I, I think when you you do get that wrap around the league, that's uh, that's what you got to do. You got to build within the organization and and draft well and uh and hopefully they change that around because those those fans deserve deserve a winning team and anytime we made playoffs i gotta say they're some of the most passionate hockey fans i'd ever seen in columbus ohio so it, it was uh it was a lot of fun to be there and a great city on top of that hey matt just before we got you on the line we were talking a little about nathan mckinnon since it's his 26th birthday today and you know you mentioned how much fun it was to play with him and all the other skilled players there in Colorado, I mean, we all watch and we just marvel at what Nathan McKinnon specifically is able to do night in, night out. You had a completely different perspective. What impressed you the most about your time, about Nathan McKinnon and your time spent around him? Yeah, no, I had a chance to get uh, get real close with Nate. I, uh, I, I'm a competitive guy myself, and uh, I think Nate brings that to about 10 levels higher than me. And And he just... He wants to be the best in the world every single day, and whatever it's in, it's it's practice, it's uh, it's games, it's post game, it's pre game, you name it. The way he eats, this guy wants to be the best, and uh, to me, a true pro. Is when, when I first went there, I have told the story a few times, but I'm at a fantasy football draft, and 
and uh, I'm ordering a burger and fries and, and a beer, you know, a week before training camp, and you see Nate order, and uh, and he's ordering a, a turkey burger and sweet potato fries, no bun, and I and, I, and a water, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, really? And I see every other guy on the team ordering the exact same thing, and and he, you know, it just kind of it sums it up for me. He he leads by example and he expects the best out of everyone. And that push, like I tell you, like I was 30 years old and I'm listening to a, a 25-year-old kid or 24, whatever he was at the time, um, you know, and, and almost almost looking up to him in that sense and be like, wow, this guy this guy wants it. And, and his mindset was, well, if you're not doing everything possible for this team, you're, you're letting down me, you're letting down the, the players sitting next to you. And uh, he really brought that team aspect to it. And, and that's, uh, you know, there, there's guys that are, you know, making, you know, making the top money, top players in the league. Um, but they, they don't care as much as him to win, and uh, it, it was a it was a pleasure to play with him. I tell you that. So you're telling me the food was better in Columbus? Uh, <laughs> it, we, we, yes, we we ate for taste in Columbus, not not for fuel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one last thing: fifth round draft picks. You know this. You know what the odds all look. They're not supposed to play over 500 games in the National Hockey League. Ten seasons, as I mentioned earlier. What are you most proud of? with your national hockey league career? Uh, making it. Um, I just like, I've said this a few times. I wasn't a guy that ever really thought of the NHL. I was just a, such a late bloomer and it kind of all happened for me in like one, one to two years getting drafted. Okay. NHL might be a chance, but like, like I, I was pretty oblivious to the fact that fifth rounders didn't make the NHL. Like my, my goal as soon as I was drafted, I really didn't care what round I went. It was try to be the best player in your draft. And then, and then go from there. And uh, I, I would say just making the NHL. And I know I ended up piling up a decent amount of games, but uh, what a what an honor to play in that league. Something you you watch as a kid. And you know, I pretty much had aspirations just to be a junior hockey player as a kid. So I, I exceeded those. And uh, it's kind of fun reflecting on on different years and looking looking back on my career right now. And uh, you know, I'm super proud of it. Thank you very much for taking the time today, Matt. We wish you all the best in your recovery with your back and your continued success moving forward into your new job. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. That is Matt Calvert. Really good interview. A lot yeah. of insight there, and I thought he laid out John Tortorella, the Columbus situation, the Colorado situation, and the detail he went into about Nathan McKinnon and how much he cares about every detail on every different day. Yeah, and we we heard uh, we got a little bit of glimpse of that when I believe it was Nikita Zadorov gave the interview over in Russia about just the focus on the food, the focus in practice, and that's you hear from Matt Calvert as well. Just as he said, look, I thought I was competitive, and then all of a sudden I meet Nathan McKinnon, and it's ten times what I would what I would say I do on a day to day basis. He wasn't a first rounder as far as draft selection, as I mentioned, he went in the fifth. But if you go by games played, he would be a first round talent in that regard. Five hundred and sixty six games, twenty eighth most in his draft class. Yes, there are still some players playing that might be able to pass him, but a guy who went from a ninety nine point guy in the Western Hockey League, and the NHL is littered with these stories, but able to adapt his game to do something different, to work hard enough and be diligent enough at the other aspects of the game. Hey, he said it there in the interview. Everybody wants to score. Everybody wants yeah. to be the man. And even at 31 years old, I still thought I could be a guy who scored. But that's not how I was going to make it, and I was willing to do those things. Yeah, he adapted, right? He, and and you, you heard it was Brad Larson, who's now the, the head coach in Columbus, who was kind of able to get through to him and say, this is what it's going to take. And it, it is interesting because he was drafted in 2008, 
and you know, your fifth round pick, okay, it could be a long road to the NHL. I mean, he played 42 games in the 2010-2011 season. So not that long after he was drafted and did really well, right? Had 11 goals, 20 points in that season. And as you heard him say, he kind of thought, this is it. I've made it. This is great. But there were bumps in the road after that that he had to learn to overcome as well. I'm sure you like all of it or at least most of it. But where would you cast your vote? We'll ask you to do it next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.